Good morning, and thank you for tuning in to The Global Current, the School of Diplomacy and International Relations weekly podcast. This is your host, Valentina de Helena. If this is your first time tuning in, welcome. We have a riveting show today with two of our own Seen Hall students, Joshua Pawanda and Melissa Murtaj. As the School of Diplomacy's premier podcast, we take a new topic in international news each week and ask the question, is diplomacy the answer? This week's topic is about Myanmar and China's human rights abuses against the ethnic minorities and predominantly Muslim population. What does this consist of? Why does it happen? How will it continue to unfold? We will be dissecting the topic as each of our analysts argue their respective sides on whether diplomacy is the answer to the human rights crisis. Later, we will have our briefer give us an update on what else has been happening this week. Now, our briefer Axel Song will give us an overview of this week's topic. Thank you very much, Valentina. Now, for the situation in Myanmar, there has been a lot of events unfolding, but it started after a raid of 30 police stations led by the Rohingya insurgents in the rocking state of Myanmar on August 25th, 2017. And the government and military of President Aung San Suu Kyi retaliated with a crackdown on the region and the Rohingya minority that populated it. This crackdown has led to over 730,000 Rohingya Muslims being forced to flee to the southeastern coastal district of Cox's Bazar in Bangladesh. The 730,000 refugees meant the other 200,000 that were waiting for them there uh, due to earlier violence and split up into five camps that cover an area equivalent to one-third the size of Manhattan. Investigators from the United Nations and other NGOs on the ground concluded that the crackdown in August 2017 was, quote, genocidal in nature, unquote, and was heavily criticized uh, the former Peace Prize laureate, President Aung San Suu Kyi, for committing atrocities against the Rohingya population. At least 6,700 Rohingya, including 730 children under the age of five, were killed in the month after the violence broke out according to the medical charity Médecins Sans Frontières, or the French equivalent of Doctors Without Borders. Now, the Muslim-majority country of the Gambia brought a case against Myanmar at the International Court of Justice, where President Aung San Suu Kyi conceded that there was excessive force, but denied outright that any genocide occurred. The official position on the part of the government is that any violence that the Rohingya suffered was a direct result of armed conflicts against insurgents and nothing more. Two soldiers now have confessed to the extreme violence and genocidal violence that they use against the Rohingya in video testimonies given to the International Court of Justice. And that was a breaking story that occurred about in the middle of this summer in 2020. So that is where the situation left off uh, with Myanmar. Now, for the situation in China, after a knife, uh, excuse me, after a knife attack on February 14th, 2017, President Xi Jinping announced policies that would crack down on the minority Uyghur Muslim population in the northwestern Xinjiang province of China. These policies come after decades of tension between the Uyghurs and Chinese state, with the Chinese state stating uh, a Uyghur claim to independence before World War II. And since then, it's been that region has been completely under the control of the Chinese Communist Party. So now moving forward to the 9-11 attacks. After those attacks in the US, China has increasingly portrayed its Uyghur separatists as auxiliaries of Al-Qaeda, claiming that Uyghur Muslims have received training in Afghanistan. Throughout this crackdown that has continued since 2017, the Chinese state has been accused of setting up concentration and re-education camps where alleged ethnic cleansing and forced sterilization have occurred. 
Chinese officials denied the existence of these camps at first, but then revised the denial and stated that any camp that existed, existed was meant to quash Uyghur separatist movements. There has been widespread international criticism about China's transparency on the issue, and many leaked investigations show the extreme security measures in Uyghur towns and the poor conditions of camps. Investigations have also revealed that the Chinese state is allegedly ethnically cleansing the Uyghurs by forcing them to abandon their religion and language. Other reports also reveal that there were Uyghur women and girls being subject, subjected to forced sterilization. Uyghur activist groups have filed a complaint to the ICC detailing China's behavior and demanding an investigation that has so far been left unanswered. So that is where those two situations uh, left off last before we, this podcast. Thank you so much, Axel, for that. Let us get started. Thank you so much for each of you joining me here virtually. Even from the comfort of our homes, I'm so glad we can take the time to discuss this incredibly important topic that needs to be spoken about. So my question is right now, where are they located right now and how is it looking for them? Um, Joshua, if you wanted to start off. So the current location of the Uyghurs in China are in Xinjiang province, uh, officially known as the Xinjiang Autonomous Region. Um, and that's located in the northwest portion of uh, China. And I, I hope we discuss in further the significance of that area, but for now, we'll leave it at that. Um, and for the Rohingya, they are located in the Rohingya state um, of Myanmar, which is in the west. And um, that is on the border of Bangladesh, as Axel has noted to the influx of refugees there. So um, two key issues, uh, two key parts of the world, and um, uh, you know, it's a dire situation. So. Do we know the conditions they're living in currently, especially at this refugee camp? So in Bangladesh, the conditions in the refugee camp are not ideal. Um, mm -hmm. As Axel noted, there are 700,000 refugees um, that have have gone to Bangladesh and in, in, uh, to seek refuge. Um, so the conditions in these camps are not they're not good conditions. Um, the government of Bangladesh is also not allowing them to leave many of the camps in order to uh, go into the populations of, of average Bangladeshis. Um, so they are trying to restrict them to those camps in general. Oh, wow. Is there any other way that the Bangladesh government is dealing with them besides just um, just keeping them in one place? Are they planning to move them anywhere else soon? So there are talks of repatriation. Um, talks between the, the Burmese government and the Bangladeshi government. Uh, they are in progress and now with repatriation to uh, the Rohingya state, um, which would force hundreds of thousands of Rohingya um, back to a genocidal state. Um, so that is another um, negative factor of, of the influx of refugees. Wow, that's not, does not sound good for them right now. Um, Melissa, do you know what's happening with uh, the Uyghurs in China right now and how their conditions are looking like in these camps? Yeah, so basically in the camps, it's said to be um, for re-educational purposes, when in reality, just forced labor conditions and then women's sterilization and abortions, which is basically trying to stop the repopulation of more Muslims. And um, which can be argued in, for like that goes against UN policy that's genocidal to completely eliminate a whole population. And they are also just brainwashing them to continue to just um, 
cleanse them of their ideas and all their ethnic background. Now, I'm wondering now, is there a reason why China would prefer to invest so much time, effort, and money into suppressing these people versus just letting them be? Is there any thoughts on that or um, theories? Yeah, so uh, China has several reasons for um, for doing this. The first, they, what they claim is they claim to be the champion of of combating extremism. Um, mm. As Axel noted, there was a, uh, a increased cooperation between the US and China after 9-11 um, as they became a part of the global war on terrorism. Um, and they used this as an excuse for targeting innocent Uyghurs um, who were claimed to be terrorists or supporters of terrorists. Um, when in reality, um, the real reasons why they're doing this are uh, are two. First, they have the Belt and Road Initiative, um, which is President Xi Jinping's pet project, as many have noted. Um, it is his legacy. It is what he wants to be remembered by, um, and it will spread Chinese influence throughout the world. But the problem is that it goes straight through Xinjiang province, um, which is the location of the 11 million Uyghurs. So they have a significant um, tactical and strategic um, interest in that region. Uh, so that is one reason why they they are targeting that region in general and the Uyghurs, but also uh, because they have an ideology in China that they want to be more Han in a sense. The Han Chinese is the way of life. It is a standard of living um, similar to communism and communism allows um, the government and the security force to um, spread influence and force influence on innocent populations. And um, Axel, Axel noted that they want to um, put them into these, or excuse me, Melissa noted this, they want to put them in concentration camps, they want to educate them, educate them, as I put this in quotes, um, by teaching them Mandarin um, and how to be, in essence, a good Han Chinese, how to give Definitely. up their, their rights as Muslims, how to give up their rights as human beings and become more like the rest of the Chinese society. You know, what's crazy to me is that I don't hear much from the Muslim uh, community speaking out against this. I know, you know, a lot of questions have been asked of where's Saudi Arabia, where's the Iran, you know, um, these predominantly Muslim countries that are so prideful in their religion, or even the international community in general, like, what is their reaction? What have we heard from other countries? Melissa, if you'd like to reply. Yeah, it's actually interesting because um, Saudi Arabia is actually pro-China currently. Um, because recently the UN met up to discuss Chinese um, acts, but because the Chinese are also on the Security Council, it's hard to get things passed because China's, they need the vote to get military through the UN. And basically like a lot of like the UK, Japan and other nations were against it, but Saudi Arabia and other Muslim countries as long as well as Russia were against it because it was in their interest. And they so basically just defended the regime because they were benefiting from the trade through the belt. Yeah, I definitely think the Belt and Road Initiative, it's really impacting a lot of people's uh, decision on whether to say something or not, especially since this Belt and Road Initiative is funding so much infrastructure and is going through about 
think, 60 different countries. You know, it's difficult to say something to somebody who's giving you so much money to better your own country. It's, it's really shocking. Um, Actually, what's interesting to know about that is that Melissa noted the UN and the um, the different information coming out of the different members of the UN, and Belarus headed a um, a they headed a document that sent out um, and on behalf of 57 members of the UN um, that were in support of China's crackdown of the Uyghurs. And what's interesting mm-hmm. to note about that is that many of those countries who signed on to that document were part of the Belt and Road Initiative and were receiving direct funds from China as a result of that Belt and Road Initiative. So they have a clear interest, the rest of the international community. Um, their interests definitely are not human rights. Uh, it's more economics at this point. Mm, definitely. Um, you know, then the next question is, uh, I'm keeping in mind the responsibility to protect. When you know, that is supposed to be when another country steps in to avoid genocide, war crimes, ethnic cleansing, and crimes against humanity. I'm wondering at what point will somebody else step in and say something about this? Um, You know, are other nations now as responsible as these countries for ignoring these atrocities, including Myanmar um, and China. You know, they're both on this genocidal spree. Mm. Can we blame other countries for for this as well, for their silence? What would be the proper response from other countries, if you Um, had to say so? I think to some extent they have responsibility because they're bystanders to it, but in reality, no nation will ever get involved if it isn't in their interest. And I think the only way they'll combat it is when they fully see what um, China and Myanmar are doing as a threat to their own security, because there's no incentive for the nation to supply their military, their troops' lives, just for another nation's humanity, because my nation's security comes first. But when that nation like feels like they're threatening their people, then they'll get involved. So what I believe is, I think, um, because China's so to preface why I think they will get involved is because we have already made sanctions on them. Um, they're, China's kind of rebelling by making artificial islands and vamping up their own military with creating their own military facilities on these islands, which other nations can see as a threat. And along with Myanmar, many of the people um, because they're not getting the education they need. The, the Muslims in Myanmar, they're not getting the education they need. They are joining terrorist groups like ISIS also. So this is also another threat to national security. So I believe once the nations take what China and Myanmar are doing seriously, they'll kind of become allies momentarily to combat it. That's a great point, Melissa, actually. You know, it's, it's ironic that they're trying to combat terrorism, but instead they are pushing these ethnic communities to join another community that makes them feel more welcome or give them uh, a place to stay like ISIS. Um, You know, we've heard President Trump even consider imposing more sanctions on 
China because of the Uyghurs. It's it's debatable whether it'll help. You know, I think China has a lot of uh, what's that word? You know, when they have that power, uh, there's an international relations term for it. Okay, I forgot. But, you know, I'm wondering what else the international community can do to help these people. I've seen a lot on social media versus more on the news itself. I've actually seen videos of drones flying over parts of China and that show how big these camps are. And it actually did a comparison on a map of how big the camp is to the size of New York City, and it's about, like, the same size. And it's insane that, you know, we could, we have to rely more on social media than our news outlets to know what's happening. Any comments on that? If you guys seen anything on social media, or how did you guys find out about what was happening? Yeah, I mean, social media is definitely a, an important factor in, in spreading news that doesn't want to get spread in certain times. Um, because sometimes you don't always see it on the traditional news outlets uh, on, the, on the mainstream news. But going back to your question of the international responsibility, um, I think it's incredibly important that there's an international response, but there's going to be a debate of what that response is in a sense. Mm. Um, I mean, the responsibility to protect we talked about for a little bit, but it's almost impossible given the nature of the Security Council with Russia and China. Um, China is going to veto for obvious reasons. Russia will veto for territorial integrity reasons, I'm sure. Um, but if we look at the, the, the international response, in a sense, is it the duty of the Americans to, to generate a response? Um, is it the duty of the West in general, NATO? Whose responsibility is it? Um, and if we do look back on the, uh, in 2017, when uh, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad used chemical weapons on his people, um, 60 to 100 people died during those chem those chemical weapons attacks. 7,000 people have died uh, in the Rohingya, the Rohingya people. Mm. 730 of those were children. So if the response to a 60 to 100 degree death toll in Syria is to send U.S. destroyers into the Mediterranean, one can only like, wonder what the response is to, um, to the, the state of Myanmar and the Rohingya people. But what I'm not suggesting, obviously, is that the U.S. send a destroyer into the Bay of Bengal, obviously. Definitely. But it's just a metaphor as to what should the response be? How how much pressure should the international community levy on Myanmar and on China? But that also brings up the issue of putting pressure on China and putting pressure on communism in general. Mm. Um, I always wonder, with regard to genocide, how can you how can you negotiate with a genocidal state about the state of their genocide. You know, it's yeah, almost definitely. it's almost an interesting question to think about. China has always had this history of human rights abuses. You know, even against their own Chinese community, and it's kind of like if they don't really want to respect human rights for their own community, uh, it's hard to make them do it for another community. Exactly. Mm. There, I think there are also ways that we can stop it because we do have indirectly part in how these concentration camps are working. Like a lot of the ways they're getting people in the concentration camps are through facial recognition and ID. And um, a lot of actual American firms and technology are the reason for the stability. Like a big supplier is the 
Hewlett Packard and Intel Corporation and their major contributor to the facial recognition that that they're using in China for the concentration camps. So I think that's another way to indirectly slow it down. And um, we also provide a lot of cotton for the the labor there, the manual labor laws that they're violating. So those are ways we can indirectly pressure them. And along with um, the Olympics are supposed to be held in China in 2022. And I mean, one parallel that to like Nazi Germany when when they held um, the Olympics there, a lot of Hitler's policies were taken down for a while because they didn't want the whole world to see them as badly as they did. So when I think if we keep applying pressure and, and having media coverage and showing how bad China's treating people, their credibility will go away and like maybe they'll be pressured not to do what they're doing because even though in their eyes it's right, they know other people won't see what they're doing correctly. But yeah. back to, back to like what Josh Joshua was saying, it's kind of like a huge tiptoe because sometimes when you when you do these things, like you stop the fish recognition, you stop the cotton, um, it makes them it makes them resent America and like the hegemon that we are, and like for example, like ISIS and then other terrorist groups. So and the whole Chinese artificial military camps, it's very hard to press them to not do what they're doing without them getting mad and like rebelling, I guess. So mm -hmm. the happy middle is hard to find. I mean, that's a great point. And I'm glad you were able to share that with our listeners, you know, uh, being able to be conscious of what we're supporting, especially in the US where we might not feel like we are able to do a lot. I think that's great to know that if we can put pressure on these companies that are providing cotton, that are providing facial recognition, or even, you know, even call them out on social media, you know, social media nowadays, the pressure on there can lead to a lot. And I think that's an amazing way to close this because unfortunately we are out of time. But if anybody else has any closing statements or any closing thoughts before we wrap this up? Sure. Um, I mean, for me, it seems that the main problem with regard to China is the cancerous effects of communism. I mean, communism breeds oppression, it breeds subjugation, um, and the situation with the Uyghurs is, is a clear example of this. And with regard to Myanmar, um, although the state chancellor, Aung San Suu Kyi, isn't to blame personally because the military has control over the country, she is she is involved in this. And so it's the responsibility of China, it's the responsibility of Myanmar, and the international community to step up and act. It definitely is. Thank you for that, Joshua. Well, folks, I hate to cut this conversation short, but this is all the time we have for today. I would like to thank our analysts once again for being here with me. Jason Melissa, you really taught me and I hope my listeners and telling us all about herself. Thank you so much for joining us, Annie. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. How's your semester going so far? It's going pretty well. Um, I'm a freshman, so it's nice. definitely a huge adjustment um, going into college, especially in 2020. Interesting times, but mm. I'm really enjoying it. I've met a lot of really awesome people, really enjoying my classes so far. So, yeah, it's going really well. Awesome. So tell me about yourself. What's your major? So I'm a diplomacy and international relations major. Um, that's my only major for now. I'm thinking about maybe adding another major or a minor, but I'm not sure what I want that to be yet. Awesome, awesome. Have you joined any clubs yet? 
Yeah, I've, I've obviously joined with The Current, um, mm -hmm. started to get, a, get involved with that a little bit. I've also written an article for The Diplomatic Envoy. Journalism is a pretty big interest of mine. And I'm also involved with the orchestra, as well as I've done a few things with campus ministry, and I'm hoping to get a little more involved with Model UN. I've done a bit with that too. Oh, that's awesome. I'm glad you're staying busy. Um, you said orchestra, what, what do you play? I play the viola. Um, I haven't gotten to do a ton with that so far because it meets, I have a class when the normal meetings for orchestra are, but I've been able to join kind of asynchronously. So because of COVID this year, they're doing separate recordings where basically each person individually records their part and submits it. So I've been able to get involved through that, which has been awesome. Did you play before or you just started playing this year? I've been playing since I was in third grade and I was really, it was one of my main hobbies throughout high school. So I definitely am hoping to be able to stick with it. Nice. For, I'm glad yeah. CN Hall gives you an outlet to yeah. continue that. That's awesome. So what are your inspirations? Uh, who motivates you to do all these clubs, study diplomacy, and just you know, come to college and open up a whole new world for yourself. Yeah, so my biggest inspiration is definitely probably my family. My mom and my dad are super supportive um, of all of my interests. And I've really, I've just, I've had an interest in international affairs, journalism, that kind of thing from a really young age. It's always been something that's interested me. Um, I used to, you know, watch the news incessantly when I was younger. Um, and my parents have always been super encouraging of me and helped me do, you know, whatever I was interested in. They would help me kind of figure out what I wanted to do and encourage me to get involved. So they're definitely my biggest inspiration. Um, and they've, they're both super hard workers um, and great leaders in their fields. So it's just super, they're super inspiring and they really encourage me to pursue my dreams always. Awesome. Do you have a career in mind that you're planning on pursuing after graduation? I know yeah. it's a little easy for all that, but you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm super open to um, anything now. I'm really interested in exploring kind of all the different opportunities that diplomacy will present to me. Um, but right now I'm looking at going to law school. Um, my senior year of high school, I did an internship with an immigration attorney in my town, and that was really interesting. I really loved the, the research aspects of it and the writing aspects, and also the fact that I could get to directly help people. Whatever career I do eventually pursue, I really want it to be a career that I can help make the world a better place and really just help people, just encourage them to be able to pursue their own dreams. So immigration law is definitely an area where I can see an opportunity for me to help make a change um, in my community and across the world. And so that's, that's what I'm thinking about right now, but that is subject to change. That's beautiful. We definitely need more of that in the future, especially too. Um, you know, I didn't even ask you, where are you from? <laughs> oh, yeah, so I'm from York, Pennsylvania. Um, it's a pretty small, it's a small city. I'm actually technically from Shrewsbury, Pennsylvania, but York is the the biggest town near me. But um, it's a pretty small city. It's kind of right on the, um, right on the Maryland, Pennsylvania line. Um, it's about 45 minutes north of Baltimore. So yeah, that's where I'm from. That's awesome. So why the global current? What interested you to become involved? So like I said, I really like journalism. Um, I've always, always been super interested in the news and global affairs and stuff. And um, I also really got into podcasts the last few years. I think they're super interesting. And I've always really liked, you know, I always listened to NPR with my mom growing up. And I've always really liked like the um, audio, the you know, audio side of journalism. I think it's something that's really underutilized. And 
so I'm really excited to get this opportunity to kind of explore that a little more. I think it's really, really exciting. And this is a really cool and unique opportunity. So yes. We're glad to have you on board. Is NPR your favorite podcast then? Probably. I don't, I don't know if I have a favorite podcast. Um, I tend to like go through phases where I'm listening to like a bunch and then like I just get out of it. Um, but yeah, it's such a, such a cool medium. Yes, definitely. Well, Annie, thank you so much for joining us and telling me all about yourself. We're really glad to have you on board and we can't wait to see more of you in the future, especially on our podcast. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so much for having me. This is awesome. According to Reuters, Good luck on your first Trump year. administration Thanks. will ban no video sharing app TikTok from U.S. app stores starting this Sunday night, a move that will block Americans from downloading or up or updating Chinese-owned platform over concerns that it poses a national security threat. The Associated Press reports that the United Nations agreed on Friday to step up monitoring of reported human rights abuses during Belarus's crackdown on protest, angering MISC and its ally Moscow and raising the diplomatic stakes in the crisis. And I have a few coronavirus updates in Europe as it's seeing its second wave from the BBC. France recorded its highest number of new confirmed daily cases since the pandemic began at 13,215, a jump of nearly 3,000 more cases in 24 hours. Marseille and Nice expected to be under tighter restrictions moving forward. So all of that is mostly concentrated around the south of France. The UK recorded 4,322 new cases and 27 deaths on this past Friday, its highest number of cases since the 8th of May, and Prime Minister Boris Johnson warned a second wave was now, quote, inevitable, unquote. Large parts of the north of England are now subject to great lockdown measures. Spain has 625,651 cases, according to Johns Hopkins University, and rates of infection in the Madrid region are more than double the national average, the Spanish government says. For Monday, September 21st, 37 of the worst hit health districts in the region will be subject to lockdown restrictions. So overall, the coronavirus in Europe has now officially hit its second wave, it has seen. We also had a big update that was not in this briefing, but the U.S. has now hit 200,000 coronavirus deaths. The New York Times reports that the northern Ethiopian region of Tigray held its local elections in defiance of Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, who postponed elections this year because of the coronavirus, raising tensions between the government and the region. Now, the BBC reports that the U.N. investigators found that Venezuela's government has, quote, committed egregious violations, unquote, amounting to crimes against humanity, cases of killings, torture, violence and disappearances were investigated in a fact-finding mission for the UN that's Human that's Rights that's Council. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for updates on upcoming shows. This show couldn't be made possible without executive producer Bella Fisher, assistant producer Jared Dang, technical producer Brittany Segura, assistant technical producer Jason Marieski, and our interview producer Tian Fan. I'm your host, Valentina Rejarena, and I thank you for tuning in. The Global Current is brought to you by the School of Diplomacy and International Relations at St. Hall University. Be sure to tune in every week for a new episode. Stay healthy and talk to you soon.